3: I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
4: Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Today, more on what to do with big tech. Just hours away from another FOMC meeting and potentially some higher rates ahead. Plus, Tesla on pace for its worst year ever. As Elon Musk's Twitter obligations come into question, we'll discuss it. Finally, don't miss the CEO of Cloudflare this hour, talking his outlook for cloud spend amid a big week of results and deals in that space this morning, D.
0: Meanwhile, a volatile week for the Nasdaq, ahead of what many expect to be another rate hike from the Fed this afternoon. Senior markets commentator Michael Santoli joins us with more. Mike.
2: Yeah, uh, you know, the Nasdaq peaked 13 months ago, speculative tech peaked a year and a half ago, nine months ago is when the Fed started raising rates. That entire period, tech growth, mega cap growth, uh, more speculative parts of the market have been the downside leadership. But The rate hiking and the higher bond yields have not uniquely impacted technology to the exclusion of other sectors. So this shows you here. This is the tech sector spider against the equal weighted consumer discretionary. It's basically the same chart Now the equal weighted consumer discretionary does not give outsized weight to things like Tesla and Amazon, which trade in tune with pure tech. So I do think it's worth a reminder that mostly what's going on is valuations coming down across the market and earnings estimates have been coming in. If you want to talk about, uh, you know, cuts to earnings estimates for next year, Meta, uh you know, Alphabet, Alphabet down 20% from the early part of this year for 2023 earnings. Uh, NVIDIA down 40%. My point is, it's earnings estimates going down that are the bigger problem at this point than it is yields. Now, there are parts of the market that are outperforming. Take a look at semicap equipment relative to software. This is a two-year chart, a very, very stark gap. And it's happening in all parts of the market. Real stuff, CapEx-related areas, machinery in general doing better over virtual assets or kind of less tangible things, guys.
3: Uh, and I heard your call out there, Mike, on earnings. Thanks. Uh, and our next yep. guest is looking to that as well, expecting markets to shift their focus toward earnings in 2023, actually favoring enterprise and cloud names over consumer tech. Joining us now, Wilmington Trust, Megan Shu. Megan, um, I-, I guess the question is, What's a reasonable price? And two notable pieces of news in enterprise tech, especially notable this week, I think Oracle's earnings upside uh, in large part due to the investment that they've been making in cloud and systems. And then MA, you know, Coupa getting snapped up for eight billion dollars inclusive of debt. Some people say there's some reasonable prices now. What do you say?
1: Yeah, I would agree with with some of that. And I think, you know, as we look ahead to the Fed meeting in just a couple of hours, we're likely to see 50 basis points of of, uh, tightening. But we're getting pretty close, we think, uh, to the end. The key and what we're unlikely to really get a whole lot of confidence on from Chair Powell is what I think matters more for some of these parts of the market that you're mentioning including m and just the cost of capital in general which is what happens in terms of rate cuts in 2023 um, and the market expecting about 75 basis points of rate cuts between uh, the middle of 2023 and january of 2024 if that does not pan out and the fed is uh more anchored towards holding uh, rates higher for longer then you're going to see probably a little bit more pain into some of those more expensive parts of the market But as it relates to technology, it's been really interesting. As rates moved higher very quickly uh, this year, the dollar strengthened very aggressively. We saw tech take it on the chin. But we've seen the dollar uh, weaken quite a bit. Rates have come down, the 10-year treasury about 3.5%. And tech hasn't really gotten that tailwind. And so I think we would expect, as the focus shifts to earnings, some of those more resilient earnings profiles from technology to do better in the new year.
3: But how much does that, I mean, I understand, yeah, Fed, how high do they raise and and how long do they hold and then do they cut? Sure, but a lot of these tech names, they're arguing that they have special technology even within certain niches um, that's gonna lead over years to to outperformance. So how do you gauge? What are the metrics that you use now in this uncertain uh, economic scenario that we're in to to judge where value is?
1: Well, I think it comes down to, again, you're you're absolutely right, not so much what happens over the next couple months for the Fed, but really where is that steady state uh, interest rate? So that plays into the valuations. And then the earnings profile. And I think as we look at this expansion, it's just really hard because technology in in this market compared to – Fifteen or even ten years ago, is playing a very different role, um, which is why you know when we when we single out enterprise tech as opposed to ad-based tech um, or consumer-facing tech, it's just such an integral part of businesses. There's really not a whole lot of wiggle room to cut back. So companies have to continue to push on technology. I think that is very key for the long-term earnings trajectory, and then on the valuations as we look at. Um, You know, I I think inflation coming down is great. The Fed hiking another 50 to 100 basis points. Fine. But what is that medium term outlook for interest rates? And there we see a number of structural forces contributing to higher interest rates and uh, higher, slightly higher inflation in the decade to come versus what we just lived through uh, leading up to the pandemic.
4: Yeah, it's, we, we sometimes forget just how good we had it, at least in terms of inflation. Uh, but Megan, you know, for every call there is that argues inflation will moderate uh, in the coming year, there's the commensurate call that earnings will be a symptom of that. And I wonder what your base case is right now for S&P earnings in the next year.
1: Well, it's really interesting to look at first the bifurcation between what we're getting in terms of earning estimates from top-down strategists closer to $200 um, for the S&P versus what we're seeing on the bottom upside still around 230. Um, So we expect a mild recession in the year ahead we expect some earnings contraction we're probably more in the two fifteen to two dollar earnings camp for next year. So certainly seeing um, you know a little bit of moderation. But that is that is really the key. um, As we look ahead and I think you're going to see some some sort of. uh, You know coming together of those different earnings estimates, maybe top-down is a little too pessimistic, but bottom-up and, and really what we bake into mm-hmm. uh, valuations is still a little bit too too rich.
0: Mm. And Megan, looking within tech, I know you're favoring cloud and enterprise names over some of the consumer tech names. How much does that have to do with, you think the valuations have come down too much, or do you think there's more opportunity for take privates? John mentioned Coupa earlier this week, and we know that Tomo Bravo has raised a ton of money to do more deals like this.
1: Well, I mean, higher rates are going to put a little bit of a headwind um, on any sort of um, buyout market or the private markets uh, in general. But there is a lot of capital out there um, and there is still a lot of cash on the sidelines looking for places to go. So in the public markets, again, I think it's really um, what you need versus what you want. And that's why, you know, enterprise tech cloud. Sure. Earnings are probably going to come down, but you're going to be looking at better profile relative to a lot of other areas of the market, including cyclical value.
4: All right. Megan, thank you. Megan Shu. Thank you. Let's narrow it down a bit. Goldman Sachs outlining their top picks for 23 in a new note, ranking Uber number one with Amazon and Meta rounding out the list. Joining us this morning, the analyst behind that call, Goldman Sachs Managing Director Eric Sheridan. Eric, good morning. Great to have you back. Great to see you, Carl. Happy holidays. Same to you. We've talked to you before about the size of your universe. You certainly have a lot of names to choose from. Uh, Just very simply, uh, tell me about Uber, and is it actually at the very top of this list?
5: It is at the top of the list from a risk reward standpoint among the coverage universe we have. And I think as we started to think about next year and what's going to work on the uh, consumer Internet space and, and broadening it out to some of the other names in interactive entertainment, and enterprise computing that we cover, we're looking for elements where there's rising utility management teams that are willing to protect profit margins, irrespective of what happens to the macro environment, the ability for companies to possibly return increased levels of capital to shareholders. And importantly, within that checklist, we think a rising margin structure, no matter what happens on the macro environment, uh, was pretty key to us because we think that's where you're going to get some support on the valuation levels as you look out, especially to the first half of 23. But we believe that extends all the way through 23, but probably more importantly over the next six months.
4: That's interesting because uh, Shahi has not been one of those CEOs that has been uh, advocating or uh, preaching the gospel of uh, massive cost reduction, headcount reduction. Um, How does that work? How how do you get that margin upside without what some argue needs to be a calling of resources in the near term? I think
5: the most interesting thing with Uber is Uber had its moment in time at the height of the pandemic in the first half of 2020, where demand collapsed on the mobility side and a lot of the legacy costs, legacy capital investments that company made had to be rationalized then. That was sort of Dara's moment by fire, uh, to be honest. And then again, in the middle part of this year, the messaging shifted. If you go back to the earnings call in May and pretty consistent execution to the upside on EBITDA since then. We think the company has done a very good job of rationalizing costs narrowing investments, picking the spots in the globe they want to compete in, picking the product sets that they believe are the best position for them to drive returns to the long term. And if you think about the targets that Dar and the team laid out at their February Analyst Day, it's a pathway to $5 billion plus of adjusted EBITDA in 2024. That's a pretty healthy growth rate looking out over the next couple of years in terms of EBITDA when compared to the potential for revenue growth. And that's what excites us the most from a a risk-reward standpoint
0: point Eric good morning and Sierra um, you've got a price target of $45 on uber that is its IPO price that it's never sort of been able to reclaim at least for a while do you ever see uber getting above a hundred billion dollar market cap will it ever sort of fulfill that disruption that VCS in the private markets once envisioned for the company or you know is the end point that it will muddle somewhere below that
5: That's our 12-month price target. Our upside node, which would be them executing on all of their initiatives uh, and going beyond just the next 12 months, is much higher than that. So that would uh, point to a success rate against the benchmark you just put out there in terms of the market cap potential for the company. We do think we're at an interesting moment in time where the products that they're offering to consumers on the mobility and the delivery side and wrapping a subscription product like Uber One around it is leading to rising utility at the consumer level. And one of the things we found in the 20 years we've been looking at at TMT more broadly would be that if you capture consumer utility, especially if it's tied to a subscription level, Amazon Prime is probably the best example of this, uh, the rising incremental margins, the rising spend per customer uh, tends to create a lot of platform value over time.
0: Eric, let's talk about another one of your picks for the year ahead, and that's Amazon. Um, This is a company that has been... um, Embarking on layoffs and perhaps more efficiencies, what's the bull case here?
5: Yeah, I think they were reactionary to uh, the negativity that came out after that last set of results across all of large cap- tech at the end of October. Um, I don't think we're anywhere near done the rationalization of investments and, and headcount at names like Amazon. I think you're seeing a couple of cross-currents at Amazon. AWS is clearly going to slow if enterprise demand slows over a short period of time. But long-term, uh, akin to what your last speaker just said, the, the, the bull case for cloud computing of 20% plus top-line growth and mid-20s or better, EBIT margin long-term is still well intact in the second half of 23 or. 2024 and beyond. So we still think you own the leader in cloud computing within Amazon. The more important litmus test for Amazon over the next six to nine months is can they provide investors a confidence interval in returning to normalized e-commerce margins? This is an e-commerce business globally that's absorbed in excess of 25% billion dollars of headwind in terms of costs from a mixture of COVID, supply chain challenges, wage inflation, energy inflation, getting back to a normalized economy e-commerce margin would actually produce a gap earnings level that makes Amazon look quite attractive on gap earnings. I don't Hmm. think we've ever Hmm. spoken about Amazon being attractive on gap earnings as you get to 2024 and beyond. That's what gives us confidence in Amazon. There's a lot of self-help here on the margins that this company can do over the next 12 to 18 months.
3: Yeah, rarely. Okay, finally, Meta, the third of your top three picks here. How how can you, Eric? (laughs) Because isn't isn't a bet on Meta essentially a bet that Zuckerberg blinks on all of this Metaverse spending? I mean, as, as fine as the core business might be, doesn't that get papered over by, you know, $10 billion plus spending on the Metaverse?
5: Well, uh, I'll answer it this way. Compared to where we were a year ago, where there was a lot of hype cycle around the Metaverse, we're in a very different spot right now. So I think investors that own Meta, and, and our rating on Meta is tied more to the core business getting better. It's one of the few companies that continues to have easier comps as we move into the front half of next year. We think the company gave you about seven or eight different statements on the earnings call in October that would point you to the core get business getting better. We just were out three weeks ago coming out of Cyber 5 saying that Meta is surprising to the upside on advertising revenue in Q4. And a lot of the investments in the core business are meant to drive elements of uh, user growth, engagement growth. But if you remember going into the last earnings call, there was a very negative narrative around engagement that the company effectively communicated away from uh, and convinced investors that they didn't have an engagement problem on the last earnings call. Yeah. Now, the cost side took over the narrative, and you've seen cost cuts since then. But we think the core business getting better uh, will be the driver of this stock going forward against a trough multiple. Yeah, In I mean. Addition- those-
3: <laughs> The, the, the problem is, it's like they're making money in the real world, but they're losing it in the metaverse, and they want to live in the metaverse at the moment. Just before we go, i got to ask you about AI and its relevance in 23. There's a lot of uh, talk about chat GPT. We're going to talk more about that later in the show. And maybe it's the nerds talking about that, though, Eric, because on my Facebook feed, I see my friends putting their photos through this filter and, and making themselves look cool. And they're more interested in that than reading AI generated essays. Is any of this going to disrupt the players that you're talking about and that you're looking at in 23?
5: Look, we, we look at all disruptive technologies and try to factor it into our thought process. I've played around with chat, GBT, myself, and, and I'm fascinated by the technology. And been both intrigued and and, and sort of mindful of what's being spit out from a results standpoint as you play with a tool like that from the OpenAI initiative. I think we're a very long way from a technology like that disrupting the scale of some of the players. And that also this conversation leaves out that many of the players we're talking about are already making those kind of investments themselves. And I think it was CNBC reporting just yesterday that Jeff Dean from Alphabet was saying that they have a similar technology but they would be held to a different standard if they launched in the public domain with a lot more guardrails. So I think you're going to see AI as a driver of multiple levels of consumer utility and enterprise utility going forward. It's going to be one of the biggest secular themes in technology over the next five to 10 years. But I think to take you know sort of an early beta product and say that that's uh, the final answer, I think it's a little, a little too soon for that.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be fun to talk about, though, in the coming years. I mean, it's already just so interesting and we're so early. Uh, Eric, that was great. I uh, look forward to a lot more soon. Thanks so much. Eric Sherry, And that was, you, over at Gold.
0: that was a good preview because we are going to talk JetGPT later in the show. Stay tuned for that. Meanwhile, take a look at Tesla shares having a tough year. More on what to do with the name and what Twitter has to do with it. That's next. Tech Check is just getting started.
6: What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open, midday, and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Let's get a gut check on Tesla CEO Elon Musk tweeting last night that he will quote make sure Tesla shareholders benefit from Twitter long term little light on details, though, and in the short term, that has not been the case. The stock is down more than 60 percent from its all-time high last November, and it has continued to suffer as Musk has focused on the social media company. Shares have fallen more than 50 percent since he announced his intent to buy last April and nearly 30 percent since he became chief twit in October. That said, it is a cheap time to buy. Tesla's forward P ratio dropping to 29 times earning. That is its lowest ever, as you can see on that chart there. Um, Guys, there are some that still like it. Adam Jonas, notably over at Morgan Stanley, has a $330 price target. Uh, John, he says that he's excited about the Cybertruck and the Tesla Semi in 23. Yeah, yeah. If they can pull it off.
3: Yeah, but 29 times earnings isn't cheap. Like, for I mean, relative to – I mean, everything's cheap relative to what it was last year. But 29 times earnings, I mean – Not cheap. 20 times earnings. Hard to argue (laughs) that that's cheap and it's not there. Not saying it's going there, but this is why Elon Musk didn't want to buy Twitter
4: after he wanted to buy Twitter, Carl. Uh, Indeed, it has made it more complicated. And by the way, Jonas does uh, bring down his forecast for EV penetration out to fiscal year 30, as he says the brakes are screeching on EV demand. Uh, Meantime, Sam Bankman-Fried denied bail in the Bahamas, as you may know by now, as new FTX CEO John Ray tells House Financial Services the company he took over committed, quote, old-fashioned embezzlement. What's next for regulators? We'll talk about that with the former chairman of the CFTC in a minute.
6: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC business news updates wherever you get your podcasts.
7: Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Bertha Coons. Here's your CNBC news update at this hour. Delta Airlines sees robust travel demand continuing next year and beyond carrier, raising Q4 guidance and is guiding next year's profits well above estimates. CEO Ed Baskin telling Squawk Box even a modest rebound will pay off big for airlines.
8: The world's getting back together and it's going to continue. So, so if I were to to kind of narrow down just to next year, what that gap is, if if we just get to 1.3% in 23, that's $30 billion of additional revenue for our industry next year over this year.
7: But next year, Americans are expected to fall behind on personal loans and credit card payments at the highest rates since 2010. Consumer credit rating agency TransUnion sees increasing pressure from high interest rates and inflation combined with recession fears. And some economists are pulling their prediction that China's economy will overtake America's. The Japan Center for Economic Research had expected China's GDP to surpass that of the U.S. in 2033. But that was before COVID lockdown sapped growth and productivity gains. Carl?
4: Bertha, thanks so much, Bertha Coombs. A big tech facing big problems thanks to a new EU law targeting names like Apple, with millions in App Store profits at risk in the process. Our Steve Kovac joins us with the latest and what's important
9: to understand in light of the news this week, Steve. Hey there, Carl. Yeah, let's let's break this all down because this is all because of the Digital Markets Act, or DMA. That's the law in the EU that passed this spring, targeting the power of big tech companies. Now we've been expecting to hear about how Apple was preparing for the DMA since the law went into effect just a few weeks ago. In Apple's case, part of it is they're required to allow these third-party app stores and open up other parts of the phone to third parties. Now this Bloomberg report says Apple is working on a version of iOS now that compl- uh, that compl- with the law for when it goes into enforcement, but that's not until 2024. But the interesting bit from the report only the EU will have the third party app stores, the rest of the world will not. So Apple says they're doing all this in the name of fighting for privacy and security, and that's all good, and we can take them uh, for face value at that. But what it talks less about is how the app store profits and margins that they're trying to protect as well. Now, the EU is a tiny market for apps at estimated $6 billion U.S. in sales last year. Compare that to the nearly $29 billion in sales in the U.S. and $85 billion globally. Now, this tells me Apple is going to fight this uh, these kind of regulations country by country instead of just ripping off the Band-Aid and making the changes globally. This is also welcome news for companies like Match Group, Bumble, and Spotify that have been complaining about Apple's fees for years, but it's even more important for gaming companies because, well, that's where all the money is on the app stores. Microsoft and Epic Games would love to sell iPhone games directly to customers, and it takes away a lucrative, high-margin revenue stream from Apple. And we still may, or Apple may still find ways to charge third parties for access to iOS. So they're not going to lose all the revenue, but they might find other ways to license access to the system. And look, it's going to take years, Carl, for this to fully shake out. And while the EU may not be ha- have big app store sales, U.S. lawmakers here are considering similar legislation that will have a lot more impact on Apple.
0: Yeah, certainly a lot at stake here, Steve. Thanks for laying that out for us It'll be fascinating to follow. Speaking of regulation, the crypto crackdown is here. The Senate Banking Committee holding its own hearing today on FTX's collapse. That is while Sam Bankman-Fried is being held in a correctional facility in the Bahamas after he was denied bail. The former FTX CEO facing numerous criminal and civil charges from the Southern District of New York, the SEC, and also the CFTC. So what does this all mean for Bankman-Fried and the future of crypto regulation? And joining us now, former Commodity Futures Trading Commission Chairman Tim- Timothy Massad Timothy, thanks for being with us uh, this morning. I want to first ask you a little bit about the language in the CFTC's filing yesterday. Said it called ether and tether commodities. What do you see as the significance of that designation? And do you think that the agency is trying to position itself as sort of the main regulator of crypto?
10: No, I wouldn't call it that. I mean, look, when I was chairman, that's when we first declared virtual currencies uh, were commodities. That was back in 2014. Uh, That gives the CFTC authority to set standards for the trading of crypto derivatives, crypto futures and swaps. But it only has very limited authority in what we call the commodity spot market, which is where most of the trading of Bitcoin, for example, and lots of other uh, crypto assets occurs. When you go on and you just trade for cash, or you you know trade uh, a pair of Bitcoin and a stable coin, it can't set standards uh, for that. Now there have been proposals in Congress to give it that power. Uh, it only has the power with respect to that spot market to bring an action for fraud and um, manipulation, which is why it's you know brought a complaint against Sam Bankman-Fried. It's kind of like the way to think about this because people often ask me, well, why is that the case? Why is that there, there that gap? And I say, well, it's like every other commodity. You know, think about cows. Uh, the CFTC has the authority to set the standards for the trading of cattle futures, but it can't tell people how to buy and sell cows. Uh, it doesn't have that power. So that's so- the d- distinction.
0: So, Timothy, do you still think that that's the right designation, that cryptocurrencies like Tether and Ether should be considered commodities? And does that mean a lighter touch?
10: Yeah, I think clearly some are commodities. I think a lot of crypto assets are securities. But look, that that issue of whether something is a security or a commodity is what has bogged down the implementation of requirements that would you know, might have prevented something like FTX, uh, or at least minimized the risk of things like FTX. Meaning, these crypto trading platforms aren't required today to follow basic investor protection standards, like protecting customer assets and prohibiting conflicts of interest. Meaning, you can't have a you know a conflicting business that you're operating meaning and standards that say require transparency and
8: governance.
0: And
10: I've proposed. Sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, you know what you're outlining, Timothy, are a lot of the issues that have not been resolved, as you correctly state. This is why we don't have the regulation. So should there be one agency in charge? Um, Should it be the CFTC? I mean, what do you make of those that argue that its chair was too cozy with SBF and too lenient on cryptocurrency over the past few years? No, I don't.
10: I don't, I don't think that's true at all. I mean, the one part of the FTX empire, uh, they, they did own a, um, a uh, crypto derivatives trading platform, LedgerX. Uh, they acquired it. It already existed as a derivatives exchange. That part isn't part of the bankruptcy. That part is operating just fine. Customer assets seem to be there. So I think this is nonsense about uh, the, the chairman being too cozy. But we shouldn't be trying to remake the regulatory framework. We have a fragmented system. The SEC will still have a role on this. The CFTC will still have a role on this. That's why Jay Clayton, the former SEC chair, and I have said, look, what needs to happen in the short run to get better investor protection standards is the two agencies should get together, come up with some basic standards, because the standards we want are the same in large part, whether what you're trading is a security or a commodity. And they should basically demand that these trading platforms implement those standards and say, we won't shut you down if you implement those standards while we sort out these classification questions or while we wait for Congress yeah. to you know, reshape this.
0: But there's been calls for that, for them to work together to better regulate the industry for years, Timothy. Why hasn't that happened? And why do you think there's a better chance that happens now?
10: Well, obviously, the FTX collapse or implosion is is a big motivator. I don't know that there's been calls along the lines of what we're suggesting, because we're suggesting something a little bit different, which is they actually write joint standards and say, We're not gonna, you know, we want you to follow these regardless of these classification questions. What people have said to date is they should get together and sort out which crypto asset is a security and which is a commodity. That's like an incredibly difficult thing to go through 20,000 tokens and decide that. So we're saying, skip over that. Let's not worry about which bucket it falls into right now. We need better investor protection So, you know, come up with these standards and basically force the industry to abide by them.
0: Mm -hmm. Timothy, great to get your insights. Timothy Massad.
10: Thank you.
3: Let's check in on the markets here. All the major averages fractionally higher and almost exactly the same fraction, about two thirds of a percent, which translates into 230-ish points on the Dow. And still to come, the tech world's got a new viral toy. We mentioned it before, not the metaverse, more on the AI tool. Morgan Stanley is calling a potential threat to Google. We'll see. Next.
0: Welcome back. Let's talk ChatGPT. GPT. We mentioned it at the start of the show, and you may have heard of it already. It has gone viral here in the Bay Area in particular and in tech circles over the past few weeks. It is an AI assistant that uses natural language processing to offer answers and questions and to offer answers two questions and commands that are read like they're coming from an actual human. It can answer essay questions, write songs, give you a more complete travel itinerary, recipe ideas, all without searching through pages of search results. Now, what you give up in that time, though, you do give up in accuracy. The results are impressive, though still far from perfect. It was launched by OpenAI, a startup co-founded by Sam Altman and Elon Musk and backed by Microsoft. And it caught the eye of Wall Street this week. Morgan Stanley asking if it represents a structural threat to Google still a long way from that though the note allows Google has scale 1 and 2 is already a leader in artificial intelligence and machine learning research but internally at Google employees they are questioning whether ChatGPT's viral moment represents a missed opportunity for the company our dot .com reporter Jen Elias got access to that all hands meeting and reports that CEO Sundar Pichai responded that they do have a lot planned in the space in 2023 but they have to move responsibly. I'm sure, guys, that you have had a chance to play around with it. Uh, Whether it lives up to the hype is the big question. So I did ask it to write an example of how chat GPT is overrated Here is what it spat out. It said, ChatGPT is not as intelligent as it's made out to be. It is simply a text-based chatbot that is programmed to respond to certain keywords and phrases. This means it can't actually understand the context of conversations or think for itself. And Julia, that is kind of the big complaint is that it sounds really intelligent, but when you go through the details, it's not there, it's not accurate or not as useful. Yeah, I would also say it's not very funny. I asked it to tell
11: me a funny story and the punchline just didn't make any sense. So maybe that is a failure of artificial intelligence. (laughs) I mean, one thing that's so interesting here Deirdre, is what you mentioned about this impression of accuracy. It sounds like it's a human talking to you. It sounds very accurate, but you don't actually have the context of where this information is coming from. So when I signed up, I thought it was really important to note that they flagged some areas where users should be careful. They say limitations include, this chat GBT may occasionally generate incorrect information, may occasionally produce harmful instructions or biased content, and it also has limited knowledge of world and the world events after 2021. So these are some serious limitations, which is fine. This is a very young product. But what I think is most important to acknowledge here is that some people may not be aware of those limitations. They may click past them. Yeah. And if people get used to using this app, then they may end up, you know, taking some travel advice and then turning, uh, turning around a corner into a dark alley where they shouldn't be going.
3: <laughs> it reminds me of those pharmaceutical disclaimers. Carl, you know, might not be, you know, do, do not use chat GPT after swimming, you know, or or before <laughs> Ask going your doctor you to high uh, blood pressure. Chat is right for
11: you. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I mean, don't, I, I think it's don't operate any heavy machinery.
0: Heavy
3: machinery, exactly. Like I, I don't want to get lessons from chat GPT. It won't make you
0: drowsy though. It's interesting <laughs> enough to keep you awake.
3: But I, I seldom want, and here's here's I guess uh, sort of the the shoot down case on chat GPT in the near term being a disruptor to some things. When I'm doing a search online, I seldom want an essay as an answer to anything I'm searching for. And I often do, Julia, as you mentioned, want references. I want to know how do you know this answer is correct? And you know, algorithms don't always have reputations to protect and expertise in particular subject areas that they can project. So how do you know if you ask it for a recipe, how do you know it's coming from a good chef as opposed to the average of all the, mm-hmm. the, the chicken parm recipes that it could search online before giving you the answer? I don't know.
11: I mean, well, listen, certainly sometimes the- you want an average chicken parm recipe, right? So I think it's really about more the use cases. And I think what's so interesting here is this question about the risks. And I think the fact that Google has not down this gone down this road is entirely because of those risks. You also have to wonder what the business model is going to be here and whether well, maybe this is more of a threat. This actual technology is more of a threat to something like Facebook Messenger, which is trying to use chatbots to replace humans, you know, allow companies to use chatbots yeah. to replace humans when it comes to customer service. Is it more going to be a great tool for that than it is for replacing search functionality? Because if I say I want travel advice, I want to actually be able to click to learn more to maybe book something.
0: Right. All valid points. But we have to remember that this is really the first iteration and it is the possibility of what it could do in the future is what has people excited and that we're really getting a glimpse of now. And in terms of sheer computing power, right, um, there's implications across the chip space, which Morgan Stanley identifies, NVIDIA, AMD, Marvell, Intel, Broadcom could all benefit If this kind of technology continues to evolve, which we know it will, ChatGPT is only the first version. There's another version coming from OpenAI, and we'll see what Google has in 2023,
4: Carl. Yeah, uh, Morgan Stanley even uses that example. They say, ask it what airlines have the cheapest flights to Paris. Gives you a series of answers and then context about how to best search for those fares. And by the way, Morgan Stanley doesn't argue this needs to be flawless, just effective enough to, in their words, uh, disrupt Google's position as the entry point for people on the internet. Uh, it's going to be fascinating, and it's such early days. Uh, meantime, SoFi shares are headed higher this morning after news that Anthony Noto bought more than a million shares in the past couple of days. Try to do the math: a little more than five million dollars worth. And with shares down almost 70% since January, he's getting a discount. Tech check is back after this. Deutsche out with some top chip picks for the new year in a new note they're calling bottom fishing they say buy Marvell and Qualcomm as the firm calls their estimates and valuations de-risked and stocks with underappreciated stability like Broadcom in their view more market actions coming up after the break don't go away. The cloud is definitely top of mind for investors this week on the heels of stellar results from Oracle, a big take private deal between Coupa and Toma Bravo and Cloudflare kicking off its impact week. Here with more is our Frank Holland alongside a special
8: guest. Hey, Frank. Hey, Carl. Thank you very much. Uh, Right now, joined by the co-founder and CEO of Cloudflare, Matthew Prince. Matthew, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Frank. So, as we mentioned, this is what Cloudflare calls its Impact Week. Uh, A number of announcements, including that the company has received a certification to do work with the federal government for cloud computing. Of course, just last week, we saw that big $9 billion deal with the Pentagon for cloud computing. Where do you see the opportunities? Is it cybersecurity, networking? Where are the opportunities for Cloudflare with the federal government?
12: Yeah, we're proud of having achieved FedRAMP uh, uh, certification. The federal government has long time been a customer of the FBI, DHS, Uh, the State Department, Library of Congress, all longtime Cloudflare customers. But with this certification, we think we can further penetrate the public sector and importantly, make sure that our customers who are serving the public sector have the certifications they need in order to make sure that the federal government and any state and local agencies are safe and secure, whatever they're doing online.
8: So Cowan actually recently called Cloudflare one of their best ideas for 2023. A very bullish note, they said in part that Cloudflare's position to disrupt the network and security and telco markets and opportunities such as serverless, compute, IoT, and 5G could enable additional growth. The analyst also said you have a, a total addressable market of about $115 billion. But I have to ask you, just a few days ago, you actually raised prices for the first time in 12 years. What are you hearing from your customers as far as demand and price sensitivity?
12: Yeah, what we did was we really... Uh introduced an annual plan that allows people to keep the same price but pay us upfront. And that helps us from a cash flow perspective, make sure that we can continue to fund innovation, continue to fund the incredible rate of growth that Cloudflare has had. And what we've heard from customers is, Thank you so much. We wanted to pay you more, uh, especially at our low end. And even though that's a very small part of our market, I think it shows that we are really um, without peer in this space. We are really doing work that customers value. And we've seen very little uh, shift away from paying for our services. And and so I think, you know, anytime you raise prices, you always want to make sure that, that you do it very carefully and very thoughtfully. And it's the first time we've done it in 12 years but I think we have established ourselves as innovative and what you get for the 20 bucks a month that you pay for Cloudflare today uh, is, is is certainly a lot more than when we launched, uh, you know, years and years and years ago.
0: Hey, Matthew, it's Teardra, good to see you. As we look to 2023, some chief uh, security officers, they may be perhaps nervous about how to handle security breaches. This year, we saw the first criminal prosecution of a company executive over a data breach. That was Joe Sullivan when he was at Uber. He was also at Cloudflare after that. What kind of precedent yep. does that set and how could that affect cybersecurity in 23?
12: Well, so Joe worked at Cloudflare and, and nothing involved in the case was anything that he did while he was at Cloudflare. He was an incredible, incredibly honorable employee. And what I worry about and what I've heard from other CISOs is that if the responsibility of the CISO is higher than the responsibility of the CEO, because there is, in the case of Uber, uh, every decision that, that uh, Joe made was run by, the C- run by the CEO, signed off by the CEO, and the prosecution completely agreed with that fact. And yet the person who is is potentially found guilty uh, for those decisions is the CISO and not the CEO. I think that's an incredibly dangerous uh, decision which has been set. Uh, it's a dangerous precedent. It's new law that, again, was was decided by effectively 12 random people picked uh, from a jury pool in in San Francisco. And if that's the standard that we want to set, then I think that's something that we should be looking at. In Congress, and making sure that it's, that we're really thinking through what all of the implications are, and I'm hopeful that as the judge uh, decides sentencing in Joe's case, they look to the fact that he's an incredibly honorable person, a uh, former federal prosecutor, someone who's probably done more to put child predators in jail than almost anyone else in the world, and uh, and and I and I'm really disappointed by the jury verdict.
8: So, Matthew, we want to pivot back to your business and just the general cloud computing sector. Those stocks, obviously, including yours, under a lot of pressure. Your share is down about more than 60 percent off their high currently. What's your take on the current M&A environment? We mentioned Coupa. I actually spoke to Wedbush. They have a number of other companies that are similar to your business, including Rapid7, Veronis, and Tenable, that they believe are on the M&A list for either a, a take private deal or another bigger company to buy them.
12: Yeah. you know i think that we are looking out at the uh, at the environment we are very biased against MA uh, i think we believe internal development uh, is the right thing so we have a very high hurdle uh, for any MA we do but we're seeing more and more uh, companies especially in the private space that are starting to see that the valuations that they raised are at aren't tenable and they're having trouble uh, raising their next round, and so I think there are going to be opportunities out there for us to pick up really great companies. We bought a company earlier this year called Area One, enter the email security space, and we've seen incredible success uh, with that and that team. And so I think as we see uh, interesting opportunities, we're uh, definitely in a position uh, to potentially take advantage of those. But again, our hurdle rate for these is is extremely, extremely high.
8: Matthew, quick question, just a yes or no, would you consider a take private deal or acquisition by a larger company? No. All right, simple answer. Matthew Prince, co-founder and CEO of Cloudflare, thank you for being here. John?
3: And Frank, thank you for bringing us that. And a quick programming note as we head to break. Just a few moments away from CNBC's Small Business Playbook Virtual Summit kicking off at noon today. You can get actionable advice on how to navigate the rocky road ahead for your business. Sign up now while you still can. There's a QR code down there. Be up there for a few more seconds. It might help. Go to CNBC.com. For that tech check is back in a moment one more thing before we go wings clipped twitter suspending an account from the platform that was dedicated to tracking elon musk's private jet at ElonJet was an account used to track the billionaire's location using publicly available flight data run by 20 year old florida college student jack sweeney the account had amassed more than half a million followers since it launched Just six weeks ago, Musk said he would not ban the account, tweeting, my commitment to free speech extends even to not banning the account following my plane, even though that is a direct personal safety risk. Sweeney's other accounts tracking private flights for Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg remain active, Carl. So here's one
4: way that Elon Musk wants less attention. Uh, indeed. Although, D, uh, hashtag AVGeek is a pretty active uh, aviation community on Twitter. Hard to imagine somebody's not going to try to recreate that content.
0: I was just going to say it takes publicly available flight tracking data. So it could be whack-a-mole for Elon Musk if he is, in fact, you know, shutting those down or suspending them.
4: Yeah. Just a couple hours now from uh, the Fed statement
3: Impressor. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.